our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. This is On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink, mom of four boys. And I'm Janet Allison, teacher of many more. Thanks for joining us as we share real talk about parenting, teaching, and reaching tomorrow's men. This episode is brought to you by Haya Health and Building Boys Bulletin. And we'll tell you about those coming up. Do you worry about the quality of your boy's diet? I do. My third son, Adam, stopped drinking milk when he was two. We learned later that he's lactose intolerant. And for years, even now, his primary food group is popcorn. I worry about his nutritional intake and I thought about giving him vitamins, but I was not thrilled with what I saw out there. So many vitamins for kids are filled with sugar and unhealthy chemicals and they're based on out-of-date nutritional guidelines from the 1980s. I wish Haya vitamins had been around then. We recently got some samples of Haya, and these are different. They are made from a blend of 12 farm-fresh organic fruits and veggies, and they don't contain any of the sugar and gummy junk that your kids don't need. My Adam is now 17, so he's a little old for chewable vitamins. I gave him some anyway, and he gives Haya a thumbs up. We've worked out an exclusive offer with Haya Health for these best-selling children's vitamins. This is just for you, our On Boys podcast listeners. Receive 50% off your first order. Just go to HayaHealth.com slash OnBoys and get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. That is HayaHealth.com, H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H.com slash OnBoys. And that full discount will be applied at checkout. And let us know how your kids like their new vitamins. If you've been listening to our podcast for a while, you know that Jen is an internationally acclaimed writer. She's written for Washington Post, New York Times, and Parents Magazine. And she writes for you. She writes blog posts, but you know what she does because she is a writer? She researches. And Every Monday morning, I get in my inbox an email from Jen, the Building Boys Bulletin. She gives you the highlights and the links and the resources that you need to be up to date on what your boy needs, what's going on in the news around boys and men. You can't do this yourself. So what I would advise you to do is go to buildingboys.net, that's Jen's website, and subscribe to the Building Boys Bulletin. You will love having this valuable resource in your inbox every single Monday morning. And now 
this episode of On Boys, which I have to tell you, I am so excited for you to hear. I could say that about every episode we do. I think you're especially going to like this one. Do you have a beloved family pet? Maybe you've adopted a kitten or a puppy as a response to the pandemic. Maybe you've had an encounter with an animal in the wild that still resonates with you. What's with animals and our connection to them and our children's sometimes very profound connection to them? We know that, well, having an animal around just feels good. We know that it gives our kids opportunities to take care of a living being, helping them develop empathy and responsibility. But do we really know what's even deeper below the surface than that? You'll likely recognize our guest today, Richard Lube, as the author of Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder, the book that launched an international movement when he urged us to consider the importance of nature and our connection to being in nature for ourselves and our children. His latest book is Our Wild Calling, how connecting with wild animals can transform our lives and save theirs. In a world and in your home where we seem to be drowning in technology, Lou says our relationships with other than human beings can have a profoundly positive impact on our health, our spirit, and our sense of inclusiveness in the world. Welcome, Richard. Hey there. So good to have you here. Thank you. Um, and you are the dad of of two young men. Yeah, and they're getting less young. Less one, young, one, like all one, of us. Yeah, one just turned 39. I can't believe it. And the other one is 33. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've got 35 and 31. And Jen's a little, a little younger than we are. But yeah, mine are 23, 20, 17, and 14. So we're, we're in the I, I, thick of it. I don't know how this happens. You know, I, I, I told my wife a while ago that, you know, our first mistake was letting them out of their room. <laughs> we should have bound their feet, you know. It's terrible, <laughs> terrible parenting advice. Don't fall. But God, they grew up fast. They it's sure such do. a cliche. You know, yes, it is, isn't it? As you were doing that intro, Janet, I was thinking about these encounters with animals in the wild, to me, always feel so magical. Because there's a moment, like, you are in their world, and they're tolerating you, and they're letting you be there. And I had an experience just yesterday, which was not me in the wild with this animal, but you know I scuba dive. And uh, one of the friends that we dive with is currently down in Roatan, which is off of Honduras diving. And she shared a video of an encounter with an octopus. And to see an octopus in the wild, which I have been fortunate to do, it's, it's like a miracle because there are these creatures that are, they can do things that don't seem physically possible. And it's, it's this moment. Richard, based on all of your research, you know, what is that? Why does that stir us so much and, and make us pause, really? Well, first, this can happen with our pets too. Um, the, the, the book is not only about wild animals, it's probably mainly about wild animals, but it's also about the dogs we have when we're kids and the, and the two cats my wife and I just got, there were strays. We've already spent $600 at the vet on them. So uh, and we, and 
you know, it's it's just ridiculous. We immediately start calling them our uh, ourselves, their mom and dad. I mean, what is this? What right? is this? You're the expert. What? Tell us, Richard. Uh, well, right <laughs> what now, is this? right now during the COVID period, you know, the shelters have been have uh, don't have many animals in. They they have animals, but they, there's been a run on. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this speaks to our loneliness from each other right now, which is mm-hmm. aggravated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also speaks to one of the main themes of the book is not only our loneliness as a species, but specifically our species loneliness. And I'll, I'll get to answering your question here in a second. The medical folks have been studying loneliness, human isolation for at least a decade. And what they've discovered, uh, some call it an epidemic of loneliness internationally, not only in the United States, is that uh, human isolation uh, is on par with smoking and uh, with uh, other really uh, aggravating uh, causes of early death. Hmm. Uh, Smoking and obesity, which is a big surprise uh, to the researchers. That's been blamed on a lot of things, but you know, we can't blame everything on Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, it's not just Facebook. Right. It's not just anti-social media. It's it's something deeper than that, or I make the case for that. Yes, it's all of those things. It's the fact that the nuclear family is in trouble. The extended family Mm -hmm. long ago began to fragment. All of those things Mm -hmm. are true. Uh, But I, I make the case in our wild calling that it's, deeply rooted in our species loneliness, literally our loneliness as a species, not just as individuals. And that the farther we have been disconnected or disconnected ourselves from the natural world, the lonelier we get at some Mm. core level. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are desperate not to feel alone in the universe. It's one of our characteristics. So species loneliness would imply to me that we are meant to be connected to these other species around us. We are meant to have maybe relationships, sounds like a, a strong word, but you know, interactions with dogs, cats, birds. Uh, I live in the Midwest, deer, I mean, squirrels, all of these things. Yeah, I, I, that's the case that I make. One of the cases that I make in, in the book, you know, this is part of who we are. Why else would we look for Bigfoot? Uh-huh. Seriously. Yeah. And I spent time with Bigfoot hunters, by the way, and they're a yeah. real group of folks. I like them. You know, we're in the hotbed up here, Sasquatch, well, in I Portland, know. Oregon. We're, I, we're I like, just saw one go through that door behind you. There's <laughs> tracks, <Yeah>. man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. But yeah, I've spent time with Bigfoot hunters, and they become obsessed. Some of them lose their families. They, What is that? I remember talking to a Bigfoot hunter. This was the first time it was in Vancouver and it was a long time ago. It's the first time that the academics who study Bigfoot and, and you know, the, the, the hairy man in the forest myth and all of these things that we carry with us as a species. First time they got together with the actual Bigfoot hunters, the guys with guys or the guys with, uh-huh. would track them. Whoa. And of the two kinds of Bigfoot hunters, I know this sounds like a tangent, maybe it is. Of the two kinds of Bigfoot hunters, they, they actually called themselves the kill freaks and the peace freaks. And the kill freaks, kill freaks actually wanted to go out and shoot one and drag it home so they could prove mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Bigfoot. 
the peace freaks were very different. And I remember sitting with a young guy who uh, had a big cowboy hat on. And this is the University of Vancouver. And he looked sad after two days of this because they were all arguing. The academics were arguing with the Bigfoot, Bigfoot hunters arguing with each other. And I was sitting with him, he looked quite sad. And I said, what's, what's going on? And he said, I don't think I'm gonna do this anymore. You know, it's just to, and this is a guy that had devoted several years of his young life. Mm -hmm. I said, why? And he said, listen to that, listen to these people. And I said, okay, if you kept doing it, what would you do if you ran into Bigfoot? Say you entered a clearing. Yeah. There was Bigfoot standing there. What would you do? He says, well, uh, I said, would you shoot it? No, I wouldn't shoot Bigfoot. Uh, I think that I would just say hello. Hmm. And I would oh. just be there with Bigfoot. Would you take a picture? No, I would not take a picture because nobody would believe me. And they'd say I was crazy. Then why are you doing this? He says, because I just want to meet Bigfoot. You know, why else would we look for intelligent life on other planets when this, this was making me think of Carl Sagan and that the recording that they sent out to the universe to the galaxies of that connection yeah one some famous scientists one of whom I can't remember his name right now have warned us that may not be a good idea to find yeah I mean look what uh European colonists did to other civilizations mm -hmm. that they felt were lesser than they were. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's not a good idea. Setting that aside, that represents, I think, this deep, deep species loneliness, this need not to be alone in the universe. Now, obviously, there are religious implications to this. But mm -hmm. actually, the irony is that we're not alone. And leaving religion aside, we're not alone. We're surrounded by what I call in the book a, a great whisper, except we detect it with all of our senses, not just our hearing. It's this great conversation going on around us all the time of birds and the coyote that walks through your backyard and uh, the animals that we run into on our hikes and also our pets who obviously mm -hmm. we're talking to all the time mm -hmm. and they're talking to us all the time. Well, I believe the same is true for wild animals, even if it's just for, for a few seconds. And we can hear or sense or be in that conversation. It's a two-way conversation, a multi-way conversation, if we pay attention. And when we do, we are less lonely. Mm -hmm. This if isn't the panacea attention. for loneliness, but it's one of the things that I think can make us. And now during the, during the pandemic, people are noticing this. You've seen this written about a lot or, or on te television, on the news and stuff. That people are suddenly noticing there's birds outside their window. Yeah, you know, we're there's, slowing there's down right there. You don't have to go to Yosemite, mm -hmm. and they're paying attention. Mm -hmm. And there, and I did a piece for the L.A. Times and op-ed, where I, I put out the word on Facebook. Uh, Tell me about how animals are getting you through the, mm. the pandemic. And I mm -hmm. got all kinds of stories from people that literally had never noticed or seldom noticed the animals right us, and they were latching on to these these animals and it was solace they were getting mm -hmm. from this it was you know what my husband and i did at lunch yesterday janet 
we sat in the dining room of our new house, which is in the country. The previous owners had some bird feeders out there and said, hey, you know, you get great birds. So Mike has gone all in on this. And we sat there and we watched the birds. Yeah. And it is soothing. It is comforting. You st- And it's, you know, first it's like, oh, that's a pretty bird. And then you learn what that bird is. And then you start noticing behavioral patterns. And at least for a little bit, for one, you're not thinking about the pandemic, you know, and mm-hmm. for me, uh, and I think this is true for our boys too, Janet, and as, for all of us, as we go through this pandemic, nature has been very soothing for me through this because I can go outside and nature goes on. And you forget where we're at. Right. Yeah, you know, we're in you a know, pandemic. That squirrel, that squirrel does not care about lowering the curve. No, not <laughs> no. one bit. That squirrel <laughs> is just busy trying to get that nut before my dog sees it in the yard. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very true. And yeah. people are feeling this. And there's some thing, you know, I the the other books I've done have been more about children and their relationship with nature and and, and adults also. And one of the uh, there was a nonprofit that grew out of Last Child in the Woods, which was my first book, which named Nature Deficit Disorder. It was it mm-hmm. coined that phrase, which has entered several languages now. We've noticed that two things are happening. One is that, yes, people are crowding into mm. the parks when they can get into the parks, when it's not shut down. They're just crowding into the park, whether it's urban parks or whether it's uh, national parks or whatever. They're crowding into, the, into these places these natural places in such numbers that they're starting to trash them yeah yeah because they're so unfamiliar with nature when they get there they don't really know what to do and how to respect it and uh that's we've got some work to do on that we're glad they're getting out but that's can be a problem the other thing we're noticing is we did a survey of the members of the children nature network and what we found is that kids are actually getting out less now than they did before the pandemic, which makes logical sense, except that their parents and their older brothers and their sisters and their college age relatives are all getting out there in nature. And they're the ones trashing the place. And it's ironic because children who need it most are getting it less now. And adults, it's a little like um, Halloween. Adults stole Halloween a while back. Yes. I'm not saying adults are, are stealing nature, but we've got to focus on the people who really need it most. Not only that, many of the programs that get kids outdoors, particularly from inner cities and and all Mm -hmm. of that, who need it most, they're threatened by the economy right now. Many of them are on the verge or have already gone under. Mm -hmm. We have to save them because there's a trauma going on right now because of COVID. But that, I think, is going to get worse after Mm -hmm. the vaccinations are given. When we start going back to what we consider normal normalcy. A few years ago, uh, the people in Newtown, Massachusetts, folks mm-hmm. there, where the kids got killed in the school, shot yeah, by- Sandy Hook, yeah. Sandy Hook, invited me to go to Newtown and to speak. And I spoke at the little city hall there and I spoke at a nature center. I said, why did you ask me? This is three months after. Mm-hmm. Why did you ask me? And they said, because we know that nature is healing. And we need this. Why three months later? Because the psychologists tell us that's when the secondary trauma hits. Mm. It's kind of a survivor's trauma. Mm. And I think we're gonna we're gonna see this. I mm-hmm. think mental health issues are gonna be, they're already hugely important, but they're gonna get more important. 
-hmm. We're going to need nature more than ever. That's one of the reasons we really have to support these programs to get kids outdoors. Yeah, yeah. This episode is sponsored by By Heart. Babies need to eat. And whether you breastfeed or bottle feed, use formula, combine all of the above, you need options. We wanted to let you know about Byheart Baby Formula. Byheart has a patented protein blend that gets the closest to breast milk. It includes two of the most abundant proteins in breast milk. And Byheart actually ran a clinical trial comparing their formula to a leading infant formula and proved that babies on Byheart have softer poops, less spit up, and easier digestion. Byheart is also the only U.S.-made infant formula to use organic, grass-fed whole milk. So if you need baby formula for your baby, consider Byheart. New customers can get 10% off your first order by using code ONBOYS at byheart.com. That's B-Y-H-E-A-R-T dot com slash podcast, and it is 10% off your first order. Byheart.com slash podcast. This is a limited time offer and additional terms and conditions may apply. One of the most challenging things about being a woman at midlife is realizing how little people understand about perimenopause and menopause, Janet. I just had a conversation with my sister about that this weekend. She is 10 years younger than me, so I'm 51, she's 41, and she went to ask her healthcare provider, hey, can you provide me some information? And she got information, but she was frustrated by how incomplete it seems, how little we know, and how for way too many people, the answer seems to be, yep, that's the way it is. Deal with it. Mm-hmm. Deal with it. And not only are our mamas out there having to deal with perimenopause, likely at this age, but many of our moms are dealing with their sons entering or in puberty, which is kind of nature's irony, which is, oof. Cruel joke, Janet. Cruel joke. Cruel joke. Thankfully, thankfully, increasingly, there are those who are recognizing that women need and deserve competent care and treatment for perimenopause and menopausal symptoms. And we know that can still be harder to access than it should be, which is why we have partnered with Winona. Winona helps women who are dealing with menopause or perimenopause. Winona is a collection of OBGYN health professionals who believe that your symptoms are important, real, and deserve to be taken seriously. Telehealth, you can access care from your home when it is convenient for you. Visit buywinona.com today to start your free visit with free U.S. shipping and the ability to pause or cancel at any time. Your path to wellness has zero obligations. Use the code ONBOYS at buywinona.com for 25% off your first order. That's B-Y-W-I-N-O-N-A dot com slash on boys. Winona, menopause care made easy. Um, you talk about this protecting nature, taking care, being 
uh, being familiar, being comfortable in nature so that, that, you know, these people that are going out to the parks know how to be in nature and not trash it, how to take care of it, and how by promoting this love of nature and this connection to the wild that we can do that not out of fear, but that we do it out of love because we have this comfort with it. We're familiar with it. And maybe my question is around how do we get our kids in that place that you're talking about when maybe our the adults are too busy, aren't familiar, you know, it might be, hey, I grew up in the city and I don't know how to be out in in nature and be comfortable in nature. I mean, I, I work with families all the time and there's, you know, we're comfortable going to the city park, but we're not comfortable going out on that hiking trail because there might be wild animals out there. You know, we've got, you know, there's definitely a mythology around mountain lions at where you live. And uh, I know the the video about the bobcat, I'm sure you've seen it, that went viral chasing the, um, the guy that was recording we'll we'll put that a link in the show mountain, notes but a mountain lion and it was, it was a, yeah and it was not going to attack him probably exactly uh -huh. if you Protected. look at the body language it was it was with its paws it was saying go away go yeah. away yeah Keep going. yeah i mean it's very clear what the animal what the mountain lion was saying because it had it had cubs right but that and we know that a lot of people look at that and go, oh, my gosh, another wild animal. And it just, you know, feeds the feeds the fear rather than the familiarity and connection to, oh, she was protecting her babies. Of course. Just mm -hmm. like I would. I mean, you, you strange person <laughs> comes in my house. I'm going to shoo him away, too. Yeah. And that's not to say that lion wasn't dangerous or that if the guy had wandered back into the realm mm -hmm. of the cubs, he wouldn't have been attacked. And, and here you've asked several questions. One, one of the things is that I think that safety in nature is highly overrated. That one of the reasons we need nature is because we're not the top dog often in nature. Mm -hmm. um, mm. And that we need that sense you know, nature excites all of our senses. And some of the people who study the human senses say that we have as many as 30 human senses. They long ago stopped talking about five human senses, mm -hmm. including the sense of humility. And that's one of the mm. things that this, being a, when we have these encounters, like you described watching the octopus, and many of the people that Arwa calling is filled with, filled with stories that, that people told me about not only their relationships with their pets, but their amazing encounters with, with wild animals, even, even a paramecium. I mean, it doesn't have to be a mountain lion. That sense of wonder and awe is what this excites. Turns out that a sense of awe is, is directly connected to our health, particularly mm -hmm. our mental health, but also our physical health. We need that. We need that sense of humility. And Two, one of the characteristics of situations with which give fill us with a sense of awe is that we're out of their out of our comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And the second is that sometimes it's dangerous in the situation. Mm -hmm. You know, um, when you said uh, safety in nature is overrated, 
I agree with you completely. And I think this is so relevant, especially to our boys and especially to our Mm -hmm. boys as they are um, navigating their adolescence, because it is totally normal, totally natural for them to feel completely invincible and be very full of themselves at that age. Um, But to be in an environment where intuitively we still sense like, yeah, so this isn't my world and there are things here that could hurt me. Um, that's humbling. And mm-hmm. it, it, it inspires them mm-hmm. to pay attention in a different way and to be in an environment that has some, some risks involved and requires awareness, I think is so healthy for boys' development. Yeah, for a, a book long ago that was published in 2000 called Fly Fishing for Sharks, uh, I wrote this for Simon and & Schuster and it was published then. I went all over America to write about America by going fishing with Americans. And I, oh, wow. and I, and I, and I entered er, many fishing cultures, different kinds that fish for different fish and different ways and all that. It was mainly the people I was interested in. But one of the first things I did is I went fly fishing for sharks. The book was about all kinds of fish, but I went fly fishing for sharks off the coast of San Diego, about 12 miles out, in an 18-foot aluminum boat with an, ex, with an ex-grunge rocker who <laughs> was becoming very good at fly fishing for sharks and now has become famous among fishermen. He's got his own show on Sportsman's Show. At that time, nobody had heard of him particularly. A great guy. His name is Conway Ballman. And I took my older son, who was 14 then, oh, who was starting to wear black, and he was starting to have that thing on his shoulder and, you know, too good for everything. And, you know, um, we were out there uh, and the shark started, he throws out chum and the sharks, sharks start surrounding us. This is where the upwell of, of water creates a feeding zone for yes. sharks. And we were literally being, what this guy does is he gets up on the transom of the boat and he, and he casts literally a fly that looks like a chunk of meat. But he literally casts this fly to the most aggressive sharks that are that are circling. Oh my gosh. And, and this is an 18 foot yeah. boat. You know, the, the with water, three people in it at this point. <laughs> the water is like two feet below the edge of it. And and I look back at Jason, who has moved himself up to the front of the boat. We're at the back of the boat. I've never seen his eyes so wide. Believe me, he was not wearing black during those moments. Yeah. And, and you know, nothing kind of gets your attention like fly fishing for sharks. And we did, and he caught a shark. He caught a fly. And we, it was all catch and release, believe me. This guy yeah. catches mako sharks, big sharks. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's all catch and release. And he's very careful with them. It's marvelous hooks and all of that. But it's Listeners, I wish you could see our faces right now, <laughs> especially Jen. So Jen, as, as our listeners may know, Jen's son is a big time fisherman for bass, I think. Yeah, I have and other two things, that But were... like tournament fisherman level. Yeah. So they're going to so love I've this had, story. I have had so many conversations about fishing over the years. And like I, I knew this was a, a good thing for my boys. It got them out of the house. It got them in nature. It was a, a passion. I mean, anytime a kid has a passion, but this is a whole new level. 
Wow, I can't right? wait to tell Tyler about this. Yeah. And by the way, I do a couple chapters in that book about, I joined a, a, a bass fishing tournament on Lake Erie, a smallmouth bass, and uh, had a great time. They were terrific. I also joined a, a bass tournament to write about the, the people fishing in Texas. And it was the lesbian bass fishers of Texas who were by far the best anglers that I met. And they were great fun to be with. They were, that's my favorite chapter of the book. And uh, yeah, you know, and fishing, you know, it's, it's ambivalent. And this is one of the things too about introducing kids to nature or ourselves is that there are a lot of moral questions, a lot of ethical questions. Yeah. About fishing. And um, I still grapple with them because I still fish with my younger son who really did become a hardcore fisherman, became better than I was when early teens. And I later ended up being a fly fishing guide on Kodiak Island in Alaska, dealing, oh, wow. dealing with Alaskan brown bears, protecting his clients from them. And we still fish, but he's become a vegan. So, oh my goodness. Yeah. How do you write? So, wow. But we're very careful. We always use barbless hooks. It's catch and release, but that is not the most moral way to fish. Mm -hmm. uh, the most moral way to fish probably is uh, catch as many as you're going to eat that day and then stop. Mm -hmm. um, and this is an ongoing discussion. If it wasn't for the bond I have with my son, I probably related to fishing. I probably would have stopped a, a while back. Mm. But I still like doing it. Yeah, I was. I th I thought you were going to say when you said the moral way to fish is fishing like my dad used to fish, which would be we would go out all day and and actually it was such a bond with him, like you're talking about with your boys. As I didn't want to fish, but I would go out in the boat with him and row around, and he would fish. But you know, he never caught anything, so that was kind of his way of morally fishing because he never had any success but but we had time together even though we never really talked but we were out together in this boat and in nature and that was a lovely way to bond with him oh yeah and um, you know a lot a lot of single mothers have sought out men to teach their kids to now why men i don't know because the fastest growing cohort of fly fishers are women and um, but you know there's a sense that this is more of a masculine thing yeah. it's really not but I, I you know the uh there are people now that will fly fish uh with a, not only a barbless hook but they cut off the hook and they they do that they literally fly fish in order for the rise of the fish to bite mm -hmm. the thing and for the tug just the tug and i interview a guy <sighs> I, I write about a guy in in, in last in uh, fly fishing for sharks who talks about that he's one of the premier people who teaches people a nature connection uh, and he takes people out into the forest and teaches them bird language and they become changed because of this but he talked about the tug he spent a lot of time with um, uh, a tribe in uh, in Africa um, and he said that they talk about the tug. I thought he said the tuggy when I was interviewing him. And I, uh, I think I wrote that in the book, but he says just the tug. And what they mean by that is that they can be out in the bush, in the, in the forest, and they can feel an animal coming. They can feel a tug right in their solar plexus. 
right around their heart, right below their heart. There's a specific place. And they're out there in order to feel the tug. And they would laugh at him because he would get scared. He thought there was a, a lion coming. And I said, no, there's no tug. <laughs> you have to feel wow. the tug to know that a lion is coming. So, wow. um, you know, we've been doing this for, as a species for a long time. We know how to do this more than we think we do. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and we see that in, you know, then we bring it back from the wilds of Africa and, and fly fishing for sharks back into our homes. And, you know, our kids longing for that first pet of a hamster. Uh, you know, my kids at Christmas one year wanted fish and I was like, fish we're not having fish in my house so it was so cool we got this these two little guppies in this little cube and they were so happy to have this fish and watch this fish and and one of them actually lived for a extraordinarily long time and and I was like what what's happening but but that but part of then the cycle and what brings us into connection is the fish dies then what do you do or the the hamster in the classroom dies, and then what do you do? And then, then it's it's giving them those lessons of of the circle of life and um, having the 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 funeral and the flowers and the ceremony around the passage of an animal. And it's call it good practice for when humans around us pass, and that that that. Um, emotion and that involvement can just foster that deeper connection to our families, but, but from coming from animals and so helping them develop their empathy and, uh, and care for animals. I I would love you to talk about a little bit about how uh, animals are being used in mental health arenas more we see, you know, in any airport, there's, wow, all of a sudden, all these emotionally, emotional assistance animals. And can you say more about that and how it's brought into that field? Yeah, I, I, I write about that quite a bit in uh, Our Wild Calling. Um, uh, it turns out that animal-assisted therapy is probably the fastest growing form of, of therapy in the, in the country. It's a little bit new. We've been doing it for a long time with dogs and horses. Uh, now farm animals are being used more. Uh, and, uh, and I make the case in the book too that this is one of the things that wild animals can give us too. And there are uh, what are called eco-psychologists who are beginning mm-hmm. to use uh, contact with wild animals as a form of therapy. As, as part of a, a deeper nature therapy. Um, it, it, when I wrote Last Child in the Woods, there were about 60 studies that I could, I could find that I could cite, uh, both on the disconnection of children from nature, but also on, more importantly, on the benefits of nature. This was in 2005. A lot of these were on mental health, uh, but there were only 60. This was an area, the impact of, of, of nature on our health mental, physical, and cognitive functioning that had been virtually ignored by the academic world. Mm-hmm. 60 studies, really. Right. And um, since then, um, if you go to the Children Nature Network website, which is childrenandnature.org, you'll see uh, 
a thousand abstracts of a th over a thousand studies oh, wow. coming in 10, 15 a, a month somewhere from somewhere in the world. It's now become a growth industry the, uh, studying this. So animal therapy is part of this. Most of the research though, of those thousand studies has been done on the impact of, of green on us, on, on trees, on mm -hmm. the, the view of the walk through the park and the trees and all that. Now, animals are secondary to that. There's kind of an assumption that you'll run into animals, but it's not very specific in most of these studies. Now there's more, finally, there's some more animal specific studies occurring, still very little on the impact of wild animals on us. So that's why so much of the evidence in this book is anecdotal, people telling stories, mm -hmm. which is really the best way to impart uh, this, this topic. I've been going to a local nature trail. I live in a small town in Wisconsin. We, it's a one mile trail through the woods that a family donated to the community long ago. But I've learned that if I go around dusk, there is an extremely good chance that I'm going to see deer in that one clearing because there's deer that hang out in that woods. And then if I'm there right as you know, night is starting, dark is starting to fall, I will hear two owls up in these trees over here and sometimes I can spot them and so it's it's kind of become this thing I like to go at that time of day because I am I going to see them today am I going to have that encounter and I can't really verbalize why that is a beneficial thing but I know it's a healthy thing for me and it's helping me stay sane and balanced yeah and people in the book some of the stories are exactly that they pass a corner every day on their walk to work and they see a particular bird and it mm -hmm. can go years. Some of these people, mm -hmm. it, it becomes a relationship. And, yeah. uh, th that's extraordinarily important. Um, I, I should say that you asked earlier about the, what is it mm -hmm. about this connection? Um, uh, that turns out to be the question of the book. What is that? Yeah. What is that we feel? Um, I'll tell you three quick stories to illustrate this. One of them is about an octopus. We brought up oh, the octopus. I love octopus. Uh, there is, by the way, a great Netflix uh, yes. uh, thing now, uh, film now on a guy and an octopus. This is not that story. My, my, the story I tell came out before that story. And it's from a, a, an oceanographer named Paul Dayton at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in La Jolla, California. Great guy, I think he's around 80 now. And he tells this story about when he was a, a student at the University of Washington and he was on the um, uh, bottom of the ocean and uh, he was uh, collecting samples. He was studying starfish. Uh, he suddenly felt a, a big presence come over him. Mm. He, you know, this is usually not a good thing. Because it stopped. <laughs> and when you're in the ocean, you are him. Yeah. You're yeah. acutely <laughs> aware that's not your world. You are not in your environment. Right. So he looks up carefully from one eye and he sees a big tentacle coming down. And then he looks over here and sees another one. Coming down. <laughs> and then he looks up and he realizes right above him is um, one of those giant Pacific octopuses with a 12 foot wingspan. Oh my goodness. And, and at the risk of anthropomorphizing, and I make the case, by the way, that anthropomorphizing is high, highly underrated. <laughs> yeah, at the, at, at the risk of that, he said the octopus decided I was a clam 
and it came down and got me. And it did. It wrapped him up in its arms. He said, people think that the arms of a tentacles are soft or anything, but he couldn't budge him. Right about then, he realizes he's almost out of air. <laughs> and um, he does this thing that uh, prey often does, that the gazelle does in the, the mouth of the lion. He, he relaxed. It's instinctive. And right then, the octopus relaxed a little bit. And so Paul, with the last strength he had, pushed off the bottom of the ocean. And he started going up and up and up with the octopus still wrapped around him. Big yeah. octopus. Yeah. And he's going up and up and up. And as he's going up, he can feel the octopus's uh, razor sharp yeah. coming around his neck until he's looking right into the octopus's eye. And Paul said, kind of laughing, again, at the at risk of anthropomorphizing, he said, I think that the octopus and I made our non-aggression pact. Hmm. And right then the octopus released him just a little bit more and they hit the surface and Paul ripped off his mask and he's gasping for air because he's out of air. And yeah. he looks, looks down into the water. The octopus is still there looking at him and they're making eye contact and it lingered there. And then finally the octopus turns and starts going down, down, down into the dark. What does Paul do next? This is the best part of the story. He puts his mask back on and he dies after the octopus. Goes back down. And he chases it back down. And he told me this last detail. I didn't get this into the book because he didn't tell me it the first time. He said, <laughs> as they went down, they spiraled each other. And uh, then he ran out of air again and he's up on the surface gasping again. I said, why in the world would you do that? Why? And he said, um, I don't have a good explanation. Um, he used the word spiritual, and this is a hardcore scientist. He's one of the most respected mm -hmm. among oceanographers. But he said, what I, what I can say, uh, even though that makes him uncomfortable to use that word, he said, um, I didn't want those moments to end. Oh, wow. And he felt something change. He felt something, a connection that he can't explain. That's yeah. what I heard again and again from people. Told, mm -hmm. Pets also, a woman in Toronto told me she walked into the living room once and their family had a big dog named Jack. And she saw her son stretched out on the floor, six-year-old son with his arm around Jack on the floor. They're both laying there. And she heard her son say, mommy, I don't have a heart anymore. And she said, what are you saying? And he said, my heart is in Jack. Oh, oh, yeah. That, that permeability, which we felt with people. Mm -hmm. We feel it with our pets, but I make the case that we feel that with wild animals too. Last yeah. story, I was on a lake in my boat, which has a quiet electric motor. One morning, early morning, nobody's there. And I look at the shore and there's two, what I think are, um, um, turkey vultures on the shore mm -hmm. eating a dead fish. And so I ease up real quietly because I want to look at them closer. And I get within 20 feet of them. And they're not vultures. They're two really big uh, golden eagles. And you don't usually get within 20 feet of golden eagles. Uh, 
And for what seemed like forever, the golden eagles would lean down and take a bite and then look up at me. And then mm. lean down again, take another bite of the fish and then look up at me. It went on and on and on. When I say it seems like, seemed like forever, one of the things that these stories that people tell often have is an element of uh, altered states. One of the altered states is that time either stops or bends. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul felt that with the octopus. Another mm-hmm. altered state is that uh, a sense of spatial size disappears since that, you know, watch an anthill for a while and you'll see that yeah. your sense of scale disappears or changes. So I was looking at those eagles and I, again, I felt what Paul felt, something changed. And I, I can't speak for the eagles. And they were looking at me, making that eye contact. Mm-hmm. Maybe they were just trying to figure out if I was edible. You know, I can't. Yeah. Um, but I felt something change. And it wasn't in the eagles. And it wasn't really in me. It was between us. It was between us. I went back and told my younger son, the, the fisherman, I knew he had the fishing gene when he was three because I caught him fishing in the humidifier. <laughs> I told Matthew, who was home from college, about this. And I ended up saying, whoever I say I am, Matthew, I'm not. Whoever I was in those moments is who I actually am. Oh, that's beautiful. And I don't have the language to describe that. This is beyond verbal language. Mm -hmm. This is in that older language that I talk about in the book. I call it the older language that we share with many creatures and have as long as we've been on this earth. So what is that? So the the best written explanation that was already written that I could find was about the relationship between people. And it was by uh, a great intellectual called uh, Martin Buber. I always have to be careful not to say Justin Bieber. (laughs) Uh, Different people. He wrote a great um, essay called I and Thou. And again, it was about people. And what he would say is that you and I don't really exist. Not really. What exists is right here. It's between us, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. literally between us. It's the relationship. And he meant relationship in a different sense than we use that word usually. He thought of it as a kind of electricity that some people call God. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what these people felt. Yeah. That's what they described in story after story after story, whether it was with a dog or an encounter with an octopus or a mountain lion or, uh, you know, the raccoon behind their house. Yep. It, again and again and again, people tell these stories. And they tell these stories with a sense of awe and wonder. And it's not just the apex predators. They're talk, telling these stories with the smallest. <clears throat> of the sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's that place that we can't explain. As you said, you know, we don't have the words for it. And yet it feels and call it spirit, call it God, call it, you know, whatever. But it is in that place of, there are no words for this. It's, there are ha- stories it's a feeling. For it, There's yeah. stories yeah. for it, absolutely. One of, the, one of the things I hope that the Arwag Calling encourages is for families to tell stories to each other mm-hmm. about the encounters they've had when they were uh, with animals, whether they were, when it was, even if it was 50 years ago, grandparents telling their kids about yeah. that time. And now when we go out, if we have an, even if it's an animal that crosses the road in front of our car, there's a story there sometimes. Mm-hmm. And to tell these stories at the dinner table, 
Yeah. Um, John Young that I mentioned before, who teaches nature connection, he calls this story catching. And that's a phrase that's, that's translated from the Bushmen that he spent time with in Africa. They call it storytelling. We've done this as long as we've been on the planet. Our ancestors would come home from the hunt or from whatever, and they would gather around the campfire and they would tell animal stories about the yeah. encounter they had that day. Sometimes they would uh, act out the story. They would dance the story as the animal. They would become the animal. And uh, that's one of the traits of these stories, these encounters is that we can become those animals. Mm -hmm. And when we do, for instance, my encounter with the eagles on the shore. During those moments, there's absolutely no possible way to feel lonely in those moments. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons it, it relieves us now during the pandemic. It gives us solace. We hear parents all the time, Janet, worrying about, you know, their kids and school and academics and reading and writing. We humans have been telling stories for millennia. Before we had language, we were telling stories. So when you give your boys an opportunity to, quote unquote, waste time out in nature or simply uh, stare at the anthill for way longer than you might want to pay attention to the anthill, they're learning. They are mm. touching into something very deep, very primal. There's science there. In the telling of the story, there's language development. All of these things that we've made so complicated, in some ways, our boys come into the world already knowing, and it is on us, the grown-ups, to slow down and to respect this innate knowledge that our children have about the importance of nature and connection. And Richard, thank you so much for all the work that you have done over the years to remind us all of that. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for, yeah. for what you do. And thank you for your stories today. I'm just all like soft and gooey over here because it's just <laughs> like, and I got to go, I got to get outside. I, I need to go look at some birds. And and it's just such a good reminder that no matter where you are, if you're living in an apartment in the city or you happen to have, you know, mountains out your back door, that the littlest encounters can be so profound. So thank you so much for joining us today, Richard, and for all of your, your wisdom that you have shared over the years through your many, many books, and you have changed lives through oh, well, this work. That's very kind of you, and thanks for what you do. Hoping that you've enjoyed those stories as much as we did. Richard Louvre is just such a marvel and such a good reminder of how we are connected in the world. And I wanted to pop on and just say, don't forget about your child's health. And Haya Health has the vitamins that will help him be strong to be out in nature. HayaHealth.com slash onboys for that discount. And there is the Building Boys Bulletin. Go to Jen's website, buildingboys.net, and subscribe. You will not be sorry. All right. Love you guys. We love our listeners so much. And uh, if you like this episode, if you like this podcast, do us a favor. Tell a friend. Thanks.
Thanks for joining On Boys, real talk about parenting, teaching, and reaching tomorrow's men. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com.